Oh, praise the Lord. It was good singing. I was sitting there blessed to uh, hear singing behind me and reminded of the significance and importance of um, corporate gathering, corporate worship. What really matters in our church life is, uh, is gathering, is it not? I mean, it's so important to sing together, to be together, to, be, to draw near to the Lord as we're drawing near to each other. There's a real question even in our um, culture and society as to what's essential these days. What's essential so, you know, what, what needs to stay open? And I believe the Bible teaches that church is essential. Gathering is essential. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, forsake not the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, or the English Standard Version, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The opposite of meeting together is usually detrimental and is, in the case of many, the course of drifting that takes place from not gathering. So it's so important if you can gather to gather for us to meet together. The pandemic has done harm and yet it also has exposed some things that we need to pay attention to. And one of those things spiritually is the issue of worship, real worship versus what I would say is the trend of the last several decades in the church, which is consumerism. Real worship, true worship, which is to give, and consumerism, which is to show up to church to take. So what we're talking about this morning from our text is the difference in the difference between true worship and false worship, the difference between being givers or takers. I shouldn't be too hard on the consumerism culture and sort of cult of churches over the last several decades. I grew up in consumerism. I grew up in the the pragmatism of church growth movements that took hold of the church and basically made everybody a armchair quarterback in the pew where they would tap their foot, check their watch and say, church, what have you done for me lately? And if you don't get at least B minuses, I'm going to a different one. And it's church wars that have gone on in the day of consumerism and who's the coolest, who's the most happening, who's got the most stuff that I can come to and receive versus what all of scripture says as the motivation for coming to church, which is to be a part of each other's lives and to worship or attribute, hear the English derivation of the word worship, attribute worth or value toward Coming in a bowed submission, a humble posture to attribute value and worship toward, to give an offering, to attribute value as a gift towards the Lord, honor and praise and glory to his name. That's what church is about. That's where the blessing comes is by giving, not coming to take, but coming to give. And we remember the Paul's uh, writing And quoting the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts, Acts 20, verse 34, Jesus 35, Jesus says, it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. 
The blessing comes from giving. All of the Old Testament talks about it, right? People in Old Testament ceremonial worship would get their lamb. They would get their spotless lamb, the best that they had, and they would offer it to the Lord. And that transfers to the New Testament where we are living sacrifices, offering ourselves, offering our praise to God, sacrifices of praise to the Lord. I'm not just talking about giving monetarily, though that's part of this. It is giving to the Lord time, talent, treasure, heart, mind, soul, love, adoration, and praise. That's why you come. That's why for us to be sort of stripped down in terms of attendance, spread out. This, this is part of a, a, a living picture of us to say it's not about uh, the program per se. It's about gathering in, in the most simplest form to say I've worshiped the Lord. I've attributed value to the Lord. And that's where we receive joy in return. This is kind of a trivial um, illustration, but I was driving through a parking lot. It was, I won't mention the store, but it's kind of a narrow parking lot. It's one that you would go to and you have people who are getting out of their cars and you know the scene, you're trying to just get out of the parking lot and they're, they're waiting and they're nervous and that, you know, and our culture right now is nervous and so people are doing this and I was just struck by what I was going to preach on. And I thought, you know, I'm going to apply this in the parking lot right now. And I'm going to apply it by just waving people. I'm just, instead of being a consumer and, and, and grading the moment and saying, you know, just let me buy, I'm going to be a giver right now. And I'm going to give people permission to walk in front of my car. And I did it at a level where I was just waving one person after the other. Even people who were going, what, really? You're going to wave me? And so people are jogging across, right? You know, and they're, they're doing that. And it's because people don't expect you to give. They don't expect this kind of heart posture. This is the posture of the worshiper. Worshippers are givers, not takers. You come to give. You enter the Lord's presence to give. And so we either come and give or we leave empty. Now these, why do I bring all this up? I bring this up in light of the Magi or the wise men that we're going to read of again from Matthew's gospel chapter two. You can turn there now, be turning there. The wise men are forever memorialized for their gifts. We don't know their names. We don't know really exactly where they came from. We don't know that there were three. We know there was more than one because they were the Magi. There, there were Several of them, probably a cohort, cohort of them, perhaps a small army of them who came to Jerusalem looking for the Lord Jesus Christ, the newborn babe that would be born there. They were led by a star. But what they are most known for is their worship and their offerings of worship to the child, the Christ child who had been born. There's a lot of interesting surrounding setting on laid on these moments, the moment where Jesus was born in a stable, laid in a manger, and then later to be visited by the wise men, the magi, later in a house. The scene is, as one person put it, kind of a scandalous scene. A teenage mother conceived a child out of wedlock, 
You have lowly, dirty, irreligious shepherds who are showing up to pay tribute and honor this newborn child. Then you have the Magi coming later who were called last week, I called them in a sermon, star-led wizards. I mean, they're, they're magicians. That's where the word Magi comes from. They're, they're coming in their pointy hats and robes. They're, they're astrologers. They had come out of Babylon 500 miles away from modern-day Baghdad or that Iraq area. They're, they're coming from there as stargazers, as people who um, would be least likely to be finding, searching for, and then worshiping Jesus. Those are the ones who are coming. Gentiles are represented here. The nations are represented as worshipers who have found Christ. Christ is like a... He's like the magnet that's, that's drawing the metal to itself, the Samaritan adulterers, the prostitutes, the greasy tax collectors on the take, Roman soldiers, ostracized lepers. And then you and I, right? We're, we're part of this. The early worshipers, you have the shepherds, but the early Gentile least likely worshipers are represented in the Magi who've come together not to take from Jesus, but to give to Jesus, to give. They weren't necessarily three, they weren't named, and they weren't kings. They should be viewed more as kingmakers in a very nervous political climate. We talked about last time Herod, who is the king of the Jews, almost self-pronounced or put there by the Roman government, an Edomite, um, the progenitor of his race and line was Esau. He was an Edomite, so he was half Jewish. And being half Jewish, he wasn't respected or loved or trusted by the Jews. He was reaching the end of his political career in his 70s or 80s. He was very suspicious, very neurotic, very nervous, very untrusting, thinking people were going to take his power. He, he murdered his family, murdered his wife, murdered his, his sons. He murdered his mother-in-law. He was a bad dude. This is a Hitler-like person with, with uh, the kind of warped morbidity where he would want to just slaughter every baby to and under to snuff out and make sure that some kind of adversarial child king wasn't going to usurp his authority. Caesar Augustus, um, on the other hand, in Rome was old and feeble. Tiberius, the Roman commander, he had retired. The armies of Rome were put out on census, collecting and data gathering. So the troops were light, the, the ranks were old, and, and things were vulnerable. And now you have these star-led wizards from Babylon who are showing up as an unlikely envoy looking for the new king. Perhaps they were unsettled about their own leadership in Babylon. The, the Senate at that point, was it, was it had broadened to more like a Roman Senate. It didn't have a strong leader. And so you have this emissary, you have this group looking for new establishment, a new establishment of rule, probably um, viewed and perceived as a Far East takeover in a vulnerable section that had been governed by Rome at this time. So the political motivations could have been there. They could have even been there in the hearts of the Magi early on. We don't know. We believe that through Daniel's witness and the witness of his three friends that there was a word 
of God witness in Babylon that for 500 years had survived. There was a remnant of believers. There were Jews who had stayed there, who'd been exiled there, who intermarried, who stayed in Babylon. So there was a biblical witness of the living, true God of Israel there. And so we don't know if they were drawn um, in, in a sense of of truth and believing truth, but perhaps they were influenced by the witness in Numbers 24 that spoke of a star. And and then they saw a supernatural light, a Shekinah glory star that led them 500 miles to make that trek to Jerusalem. We don't know, but uh, we don't know where they were exactly spiritually at that moment, but they were in process and they're working through the question of who is this king of the Jews that we want to pay homage to. You have two different kings that are represented here in our text, just to review from last week. You have one king who is Antichrist, who's Herod, who's Satan-inspired, who's Hitler-like, who represents death, not life, hopelessness, not hope. You have Christ, who is the light, who represents hope, who is the Messiah, who is the true king. You have Antichrist versus Christ. You have paranoia versus hope. And these two kings spark three reactions in the story. And these are the three reactions that we see from many, even within our church culture and societal culture. When you speak of the true Christ, you have people who hate Christ. They're Herod-like. They don't want Christ. They want a different king. They want different ideologies to rule, different mindsets to rule, different philosophies to rule. Does any of that sound familiar? They don't want Christian rule. They don't want Christ to rule. And then you have people even within the church that are indifferent to Christ. You have that culture that says we will countenance that there was a Jesus. We countenance that there's a Bible. We will show up maybe to church, but I'm basically indifferent. And we see that in the participation of the chief priests and scribes who laser specified that, yes, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, five miles southeast from Jerusalem, Five miles away, yes, there are these magi that are stirring up Jerusalem right now. People are nervous. They're nervous. Herod is nervous. Herod is making everybody nervous. What's Herod going to do? Is he going to start sort of genocide here? Is he going to wipe people out? They knew he was homicidal, so they're nervous. And in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, says that all of Jerusalem, you see that in verse 3, was troubled. And they were troubled by Herod because... These, these magi had stirred things up. And then secondly, in difference, verses four to six, where uh, the scribes and the chief priests are able to immediately cite scripture and say, yes, what the magi are talking about, what Jerusalem is, is chatting about is the birth of a Messiah, a king who's to come in Bethlehem. But they're not connecting the dots. They're not willing to go down to Bethlehem and find out. They're not willing to go. They're not true worshipers. They're just religious people. Well, thirdly, the third reaction is worshipers or worship. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 7 to 12. We're going to look at false worship versus true worship. So there's three reactions. Well, we're going to split the third reaction into false worship. Worship that is fake in it. Worship that is worship that takes versus worship that gives. You have taking worship and giving worship, false worship and true worship. Verses seven and eight, this is Herod's version of worship, which is false worship. 
It says, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod's the figurehead of false worship. He at core is filled with hypocrisy. He is like the Pharisees that Jesus would indict and say, you, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You're just, you know, just an empty tomb full of dead men's bones. You're not a true worshiper. You are a hypocrite. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, you hear that, that kind of strong biting um, sermon from Jesus in Matthew 22 and 23. It's coming, but that's the indictment of false worship not being true, not being filled with the spirit, but filled with traditions and hypocrisy, doctrines of demons, Matthew 15, verse seven, you hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, this kind of hypocrisy leads to secret meetings. Herod wanted to stay under the radar. He didn't want to be exposed as unspiritual. He wanted a secret meeting. So he calls the magi, he calls the magicians in and says, hey, you know, I've been having a Bible study with the chief priest and the scribes and we've figured it out. We know that you're knocking on doors, going door to door to find out where the Messiah is at the, at the infant child who's been born. And we got that down, but we need a little bit of a timeline on how old this baby might be. Hmm, we want to know. We, we know he's in Bethlehem. That's what's going on in the secret meeting, maybe. We know he's in Bethlehem. We figured that out. We have Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2 before us. These scriptures are targeting that. But I want to know how old he is. And why would he want to know his age? It's because Herod wants to be sure to snuff out this child. He wants to know the age and the location so he can do a target strike on this supposed king of the Jews. Now, he, in his back pocket, had planned a massive slaughter, an infanticide, ages two and under. You can see this in verse 16 of chapter two. He's planning to do this. It says that he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So he's cooking up this strategy that he's going to slaughter children two and under. He's probably going to do it no matter what, but he wants to be sure that he has the timeline right, that, he is t- that his target is right. He perhaps doesn't want to have to go to that measure if he can ensure that he has killed the one who's called king of the Jews. He wants to try to keep in good favor politically with the people around him. So this is not a good move for the popularity vote um, in his region. But Herod was a Hitler. And so killing small boys in Bethlehem was almost a whimsical decision for him. Something that he was ready to initiate, to slaughter them as necessary. Everything in Herod's plan hung on trust, which is kind of gross when you think about Herod's hypocritical heart. He's feigning as a believer. He's feigning as a worshiper. He's basically saying to the Magi, look, you traveled 500 miles. I'm the old king of the Jews. 
And now I'm wanting to affirm together with you the new king of the Jews. It's his strategy. That's the whispering secret meeting. Let's, let's join forces. You go down for me. You know, you're going to have to knock on doors. You're going to have to go down side streets and twisting lanes and knock on doors. And just like you did in Jerusalem, now just do it in this small town of Bethlehem. It won't take you as long. It won't take you as many months or years to do this. We're ascertaining, you know, based on the timeline of when you started following that star in Numbers 24 and now Micah 5, 2, 2 Samuel 5, 2, we got it down into Bethlehem. All you got is five more miles to go and I'm with you in heart. There's no need to send an army with you. There's no reason to expose this or do this publicly. Just go down, you know, privately and then privately message me, just text me and I'll be on my way. That was for jokes, take. That was a humor. That was just a moment. It's all right. Anyway, just let me know, and then I'll follow down there, and I will, and here's the word which is so hypocritical, I will worship him. The wise men, they were coming as true worshipers, verse 2. There's that word, proskuneo, to bow before, to pay homage towards, to give value to, to Psalm 2, 2, to kiss towards the sun. And then he's saying in verse 8, I, that I too may come and worship him. Bring me word so I can go and follow you down there. That's the storyline. That's what's going on. What's amazing is the transition between verses eight and nine, because it leads us from false worship to true worship. From what Watch this, what Herod was incapable of doing, the Magi was being, uh, was, was made capable to do. They were regenerated. They were transformed. To be a true worshiper, you have to be transformed. You have to be changed from the inside out. You cannot offer God true worship unless you have the Holy Spirit. You cannot offer God a sacrifice of praise that is holy. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Holy and acceptable unless the Holy Spirit has transformed your life. Unless you have had heart surgery where the old heart is taken out and you're given the new heart. All things pass away, everything becomes new. Unless you're a new creature in Christ, you cannot, you are incapable of worshiping the Lord in a way that he will receive it. This doesn't make sense to a naturally minded person. So to be a true worshiper, as John 4 spoke of, where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, to be a true worshiper, you worship in spirit and in truth. The word of God transforms your heart and life and you become born again and you are a worshiper. You are, 1 Peter 2, a living stone as part of the temple of God. Herod was not that person. These magi either had become true worshipers and that sort of brought them there following the Shekinah star or they were in process, kind of like a conversion story. You know, I don't know exactly when I became a a Christian, but suddenly I became excited to worship. And I see this excitement in verses nine and 10. This is the beginning of second point under worship. True worship gives worship that begins with the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 9, they're still under Herod's leadership. It says, after listening to the king. This is the false king. This is Herod the king. They're listening to him. And then, comma, they went on their way, 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This word behold is the word idu. The word see, idon, is the same word family. Behold, see, behold, see. This is what Matthew likes to do when he writes. He's saying, look at this. The, the wise men look through their eyes. They're following Herod. They're going down to Bethlehem. They're expecting to go door to door and try to find the new king. They're expecting to do a lot of work. And suddenly, the star shows back up. The same star, the Shekinah glory presence that had led them 500 miles and had gone away. Remember, they did all that door-to-door work in Jerusalem. They had stirred up the city. They had stirred up Herod. They had gotten an audience with him. They're diagnosing where Jesus was to be born through scripture. And, then, and they're, going from, they're going by the leadership of Herod, an antichrist leader, And then suddenly God takes them out from under that leadership and puts them under the leadership of the star. And the star here is the presence of God, not a physical star like our sun. This is a supernatural presence of God, a Shekinah presence, just like the one that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. It's back again. And they're, if I can use some surfing vernacular, they're really stoked. They're stoked. And why do I say that? Look at verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, and there are superlatives upon superlatives here in the original language, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So excited. Verse 9, this is a star. It's the one that rose before in Babylon that they're connecting with Numbers 24 and following all the way. And it came back and it literally It's personified here as a star that's resting over Jesus, over the child, meaning over the house. Some scholars say, well, the star, you know, is kind of nebulous and we're not exactly sure if it went all the way to Bethlehem. The text says it's resting over the child. I don't know how people miss it. It's it's a miracle. God is pointing in neon lights with arrows. Jesus is here. Go there. They are thrilled. All the work that they were going to have to do was just taken away. God overrode, took them out from under Herod's leadership, under a false teacher, a false worshiper, into the hands of the Lord where he's going, where they knew I am in God's, the center of God's will under God's sovereign care. He's put me exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be on this path. I'm supposed to go to Jesus's house today and worship him. And God is directing me there. That's what's flooding their hearts. This is what floods the heart of true worship, where you know God has saved you, God has called you, he's given you a new heart, he's put light inside of you. Where's the Shekinah now? It's the glory of God in the face of Christ inside of us. The illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is in our hearts and we see with clarity what God's will is and who we are to go and worship. And they were entering into the house of Christ, just like we enter into the presence of God in our hearts and worship him. That's the exceeding joy that they felt. And so we don't know if this is their conversion, but we know that this is an affirmation of their conversion. Every true worshiper knows this joy because it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Probably enough said there, but... They went right into 
this house. I just, I, I can't get over how God interrupts our lives. We're going one direction. He interrupts it, reveals himself through the word of God and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and makes sure that we know we're on the right track as worshipers of God. This is the experience of every Christian's life. And verse 10, this is the epiphany of the wise men. Well, it brings us to verse 11. They go right into the house of the Lord. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell down and worshiped him. There's a boldness here. There's a confidence that the children, that the Magi knew that they were going to the right house. They weren't confused. They just went right in. It's not a stable This is not Jesus laid in the manger. This is Jesus, the toddler, playing on the floor with toys at mom's feet. This is that moment. This is toddler two in the nursery. This is, that's Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Herod slaughtered children two years and younger for a purpose. Jesus was this age. He's in a house at this time. They see Jesus and they see Mary. And the language here puts the child before Mary to make clear that Jesus is the one to be worshiped, not Mary. Mary is the object of worship in um, wrong-headed religion, matriology, and um, co-redemptrix religion is wrong religion. And Jesus is the object of our worship. He's always put first in every place in the gospel where Mary is there. It's always Jesus first, and then Mary is mentioned and honored as a believer, but not a perfect person. They saw Jesus through the eyes of faith. Here's that word seeing again, going into the house. Look at this, Idon, they saw, they had seen a star. Now they see Jesus, behold and see. They saw the child and they fell down and worshiped him. Falling down was the only right response for them. You have dignitaries here, you have magi, you have people who are respected in the Babylonian community. They've gone all this way, they've brought all of this treasure and their perfect and holy response is to fall at the feet of a baby. Why did they do that? Did the baby do miracles? Was the baby causing his toys to levitate around the room? Did he suddenly speak in an amazing way, teaching truth? No, none of those things. This is a picture of the beautiful, perfect humanity of Jesus, and he's fully God at the same time, but that is believed on by the wise men. They're embracing all of who Jesus is by faith. By faith, it wasn't some miracle moment. It wasn't a moment where um, they were having to be convinced. They were convinced because God had changed their hearts to see the living Lord and worship him. Worshiping Jesus is the only right way to worship. He's the only true object of our worship, right? We worship the one true God. I'm very concerned about the idea of people worshiping or paying homage to any other person or any other object in false religion or false ideology, ideologies or for false purposes. We worship God and God alone. We bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ like these disciples of Christ did. These early pagan converts 
Magi who were part of the occult. They were part of a religion of Zoroastrianism, stargazers. They were the magicians. They were converted. They're falling down before Jesus in love and praise and worship. What probably one page over in your Bibles, like mine, Matthew 4, 8, and 10 is the early ministry of Jesus where he goes into the temptations of Christ. And the third temptation is where Satan says, bow down, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And the Lord Jesus, quoting Old Testament scripture, says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We don't worship satanic ideology. Worship the Lord alone. John, the writer of Revelation, he he falsely worshipped an angel. He fell down, and the angel corrected that, Don't worship me, I'm a created being. You have... um, Cornelius, who worshiped Peter, who showed up at his house to win him to Christ. Acts chapter 10, 25, Peter corrected that. Acts 14, 11, and 13, you have Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey where, you, where Barnabas is called Zeus, Paul is called Hermes. People wanted to offer sacrifices to them. They were doing miracles. They said, don't worship us. Worship the Lord alone. That's whom we worship. Same word is used in Matthew 4, 8 and 10, the same words that are used here in verse 11 of chapter 2. It's the idea of Pipto falling down and proskuneo worshiping. This is ultimate homage to a newborn king. It's an extreme contrast with the book of Matthew. The rest of the book of Matthew is going to basically show how the Jews reject Jesus and do not worship him. You have a few worshipers, but most of Matthew is a rejection of Christ. No matter how many miracles, no matter what he says, no matter what he does, no matter who he is, people reject Jesus all the way to the cross. Give us Barabbas, crucify him. But this is a little baby on Mary's lap and these converts worship. They worship as Examples of the believing world that would come to Jesus and believe on him. Isaiah 60, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah 60, 1 through 5, Micah 4, 1 and 2 speak of the nations coming to worship Jesus and they represent the nations. And we too, we sing along with Charles Wesley, the Christmas hymn, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Hail the Incarnate Deity, Pleased as Man with Men to Dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, right? That's what floods our hearts as well. Well, what did they bring? They brought treasure. They didn't come to take. They came to give. It says in verse 11, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't want to make too much of these three gifts in terms of symbolism The point of these gifts is these are gifts that are fit for a king. And they knew it. And the example and model of worship here is giving. You see, and if we had time, we could look at the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, 1 through 10. All of what the Queen of Sheba brought to Solomon after she saw that he was someone who garnered the wisdom of God who answered all of her questions. She couldn't hold back all quantities of gold and spices. 
for the king's precious stones and wealth. Isaiah 60 verses 5 and 6 speak of the wealth of the nations that was to come to Christ, come to the Savior. Certainly these kinds of gifts, these three kinds of treasure allude to aspects of who Christ is. Christ is king. Gold is fit for a king. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. Gold is the supreme, superior, precious metal and offering that was given to the Lord. Some conjecture that Joseph and Mary used that so that they could use it as wealth to get away from Herod and flee to Egypt. We don't know that to be the case. But Jesus was given gold. And then frankincense speaks of the deity of Christ. Christ is to be worshipped. And frankincense was used in temple worship and was valued in that way. It was separate from the sin offerings. Jesus is the perfect lamb without sin. And so frankincense would be appropriate to represent worshiping God with incense. And then thirdly, myrrh, which is the... um, was used as an admixture, as an analgesic for um, numbing pain and was offered to Jesus when he was dying on the cross. And Jesus in Mark's gospel, I think it's Mark chapter 10, rejected the uh, offering. Mark chapter 15, verse 23, rejected the offering so that he would bear the um, the full pain of the cross on our behalf. Ultimately, in John's gospel says he received wine later, but Not at that moment. Myrrh also is used to embalm bodies that were dead. And Jesus was embalmed with myrrh, which pictures and alludes to him as our sacrifice. So Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is fully God. And he's fully human, our perfect sacrifice. And that could be found in what's represented in these gifts, but that's not the point. The point of the wise men giving gifts was that They were giving, not taking. They were affirming, not consuming. Worshippers are not consumers. Worshippers do not have a scorecard where they're grading church. Worshippers are people who come, who've been struck by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. They see the Shekinah glory of God in their hearts from scripture. And they say, I have to give an offering of praise to my God. And I will lay myself down and I will give to him. This isn't just talking about giving money. It's talking about giving your heart. That's worship. And the most unlikely disciples, new disciples, who were the Magi, they got it right. They held nothing back. They gave him everything. This is for one reason why people say they were wise. Verse 12 We'll finish with this. It's kind of a good postmark. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What does this mean? This just is another affirmation that they were right in the center of God's will. They had their apex moment before Christ, and then they vanish away into obscurity. Sounds like the kingdom of God and the Christian life. You have your moment in your lifetime, and then you kind of just live in obscurity in the background, right? That's what the wise men did. They didn't stay there. They went by another way. God was taking care of them, protecting them, and leading them back to Babylon to be witnesses there, 500 miles away, going home to serve the Lord there right in the center of God's will. What do we take from this? Worship is giving, not taking. If you give, then you do receive. 
but not as a consumer. The worship that God hates is false worship. It's being a faker. Give over, give over to true worship. Reject fakery. Love God for real. Rejecting fakery takes you out of a foreign land and it puts you right into the house of Jesus, right at his feet.